Welcome to the Escape Podcast. I'm Jason Jenner, and this week my guest is Martin Weaver. Martin has had a fascinating career working in systems technology for some of the most prestigious visual effects studios in the world, including Industrial Light and Magic and the Moving Picture Company. We discuss Martin's career to date, the history of visual effects technology, and what it takes to manage global multi-site visual effects pipelines on a huge scale. A really interesting discussion this one, and we hope you enjoy it. Martin, good afternoon. Afternoon. How are you, sir? All right? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. Good, good. Um, so I think it would be interesting for to, just to get started to hear a bit about your journey um, in visual effects, because, you, know, you know, you're a long-term friend of Escape, and we've known each We've known each other some time and you've worked with, um, you've been working at MPC a long time, but you've got some interesting background before that. So could you give us a little sort of oversight into how you got into the business and, you know, previous um, previous places you've worked? <laughs> okay. So I've been interested in films right from, from when I first started thinking about a career, but it wasn't, it wasn't really a thing when I, when I went to university. Um, but I, was, I, I did a computer science degree at Manchester University and um, I spent three years on the same course in the same uh, accommodation as a chap called Kim Lebrary, who became a very close friend. And, um, he's, the, he's the main uh, reason I got into the industry. Um, after graduating, I got a very dry, boring job uh, programming in Manchester doing computer commercial software. And he did a bit of world traveling and ended up working um, various places uh, and ultimately writing software at a computer film company, which eventually got acquired and became part of Framestore. Um, but back in those days, you didn't you didn't really buy things off the shelf. Um, CFC were, were very good at inventing their own technologies, and I was very curious about that. And after he came up um, to Manchester to do a talk for the uh, the IEEE um, that I went to, I, I went and visited and uh, came to London and, and saw for myself the stuff he was working on. And um, from that moment, I was I was like, how do I get into this industry? I'm really really excited about it. He, he left uh, CFC about a year later and um, joined, joined this startup that Kodak had called CineSign. Um, and um, not long after that, phoned me up to ask if I knew anybody that would be interested in a job there. <laughs> so, uh, it was one of those kind of um, leading questions. So uh, not very soon after I started at CineSign, and that was well, 1994, so that's 26 years ago. So that was the beginnings. Yeah. Um, and at that point, they were just like a a, a, a showroom, really, for Cineon, um, because um, you could now you could then buy a, a scanner, recorder, and compositing software off the shelf on and running on Silicon Graphics hardware. And uh, all of a sudden, anybody who didn't have to invent their own technology could, could go into film VFX production uh, and do uh, do very high quality compositing work thanks to those Kodak technologies. So um, that was the beginning. Um, the three years I was there, I ended up being a uh, computer services manager or systems manager or, or kind of the head of the, the, the sort of systems infrastructure. And uh, the company grew from, from pretty much nothing to being the biggest place in Europe. And I had a huge number of Silicon Graphics workstations and was running things like ABS Power Animator and uh, started dabbling with RenderMan and, and stuff like that. So they, they, uh, they grew very, very rapidly. That was a very exciting time. Um, and what happened then is the people that started getting a few years experience then wanted to, wanted to work on the big, really big Hollywood movies. So started seeing people leaving to go and work in America. Um, and uh, again, Kim left uh, 
to go and work on what dreams may come with mass illusion. Um, and when they won the matrix, I followed um, and then lived in California for a few years working on feature films, uh, primarily the matrix and the sequels. Um, and then after all of that finished, um, moved to ILM for a year, um, which was a very exciting time. That was kind of my, kind of like the, uh, if I'd been to school at, at uh, CineSight and, and kind of got my skills up to speed there, that was like the, uh, the finishing school or the, or the postgraduate in, uh, in DFX. So it was like a 12 month, uh, very, very intense period, um, running a, a team of people that were, were basically putting together a, uh, a pipeline for, episode three of Star Wars. So there were, there were disparate different technology groups that were, that were grouped together as a, as a, as a team um, that looked after the media systems there. Um, then the architects for the render farm and the storage, um, the production systems. Um, so there was, a, there was a, an eclectic mix of different engineering skills though, including the color pipeline that, that were under my management. And so I, I had to get to get, get to know and get across a huge number of technologies in a very short space of time. Um, so yeah, that, that was a, an extremely rich learning environment for me. And that would have been ILM at sort of full tilt, right? Because that's that's episode three. That's Revenge of the Sith. I'm just I'm just remembering that those those Star Wars prequels are, are um, obviously very CG heavy, and that would have been a very very you know expansive CG operation at ILM. It would have been you know um, a very very big infrastructure at that point. I mean, what what can you tell us about the sort of scale of that operation at the time? Well, as I, as I came on board, they were in the process of, of finishing a deal on their storage. They kind of um, got to the point where their storage wasn't able to keep up with the size of the render farm that they'd been build, building. Yeah. Um, and they had been using kind of individual um, NFS servers. And it was the first kind of uh, very early years, around 2000, what, 2002, 2003, um, where... A lot of small startups had started making clustered storage, yeah. And they'd done a, a large evaluation on um, those different systems, um, and I think there were about half a dozen they'd looked at and done paper evaluations on. And they just finished a, an on-site eval of this system called Spinnaker, um, mm -hmm. and they committed to that more or less at the same time as, as me joining the. The, the business and that was one of the big projects was putting that in place to be able to cope with the, the complexity of the renders they needed to do on the size of the farm that they were building. So um, that was a, a very exciting time because more or less contemporary with us signing the, or at the, at the time ILM signing the deal with Spinnaker, um, Spinnaker then got bought by Network Appliance. So um, there was a big transition that went on there and that was kind of disruptive to their pipeline um, at a time where they got now a very large scale customer that was really, really putting pressure on the technologies. So that was a, a, a very large amount of my management time was looking after that relationship and making sure that we were getting um, the support that we needed when they were pushing through huge volumes of renders and, and really, really pushing the, the, the limits of what the system could deliver. Yeah, and for I mean, I'm pretty sure that a large proportion of people that might be listening to this conversation will know what cluster storage is. But you know, would it be right to classify that as you know, cluster storage would be you know a, a setup where 
you can have multiple servers with multiple storage estates hanging underneath them that are all sitting underneath one encapsulating file system. Effectively, one file can, system, one namespace. Yeah, so, yeah, one namespace. So, so, so what, what people tended to do as they grew is they, they'd buy a filer, they, they'd get to the capacity of the filer and then go, oh, we need another one. So you'd end up with a farm of different file systems, a farm yeah. of different, different NFS filers. And um, you started then having issues managing it and balancing the utilization of that and not being able to use them necessarily in concert unless you had some kind of clever software layer that you brewed up yourself using symlinks or some such. Um, so um, having a single namespace and having something that would scale um, as you added more nodes to it in terms of throughput, bandwidth, um, and, and IOs, it, that was the ultimate dream is you, you wanted something that you could just add more components to and you could get more capacity and more performance out of and, and scale it linearly. Yeah, that was yeah. that was the hope of of the clustered file systems that were coming onto the market. Because whenever you got a new job, you'd inevitably add more workstations to it, and you'd add more uh, render farm capacity, and you needed to be able to scale your storage capacity in the same way. Yeah, uh, rather than adding adding monolithic blocks that didn't necessarily perform um, the same way as as, as adding a, another chunk to your farm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting actually that <laughs> I mean you know I deal with cluster storage all the time, you know, selling it, as you know. And I think, it, you know, it seems to me in a way that's quite late for that to have become, you know, if, if you're saying that, you know, prior to that movie project, you know, episode three, Star Wars, that that wasn't commonplace. Yeah, um, well, it's, you know, it's, that's quite interesting. It's isn't something it? like 17 years ago now, so it's quite yeah. a long time, really. But yeah, that yeah. was, that's a relatively new uh, innovation. Um, and then um, from from there, moving forwards, got, I was only there for a year, but it seems like the experiences I had, it was such an intense period. It felt like a longer period of time um, because every day was so different. But um, moving back to the UK and, and getting a job at an MPC um, and, and starting there as, as head of systems, um, that was when MPC was just a single site. And they'd got that scenario where they built, I think they had something like 30 to 40 different individual NFS servers back then right. of various different shades. Um, and, and, and different manufacturers and different specs and different capabilities. They had got a software layer that allowed them to balance the software uh, or balance the performance and make it appear like a, a single namespace. Something they've but, written themselves or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, the performance across all those different um, clusters um, was hard to balance. And uh, you inevitably had one that was full or, or too full and, and would fall over and you'd have one that was half empty and, and you, you'd then have to kind of um, try to manage um, moving stuff around to free up capacity. Uh, it's a little bit like trying to change the tires on a moving car. Um, the production inevitably wants to keep moving, but you, you can't really stop, put the brakes on and stop everything just to do that work. So that, that became a very labor intensive kind of constant effort doing that. And um, one, of the, one of the things I got asked to do when I first joined was to, to, to identify a new storage system uh, for the growing BFX business um, and, uh, and do an evaluation um, and come up with a solution. And what so, year was that, do you think? That was late 2004, early 2005. Right, okay. Um, so it was, it was kind of a 2005 project. Yeah. Um, and at that point, there wasn't um, as much available in the UK compared with California. Most of the most of the startups were in Silicon Valley or, or 
yeah. uh, in the States. And so quite a few of them didn't really have uh, international sales or, or outside of the US, they didn't, didn't have any kind of uh, engineering or support capabilities. So that limited the, the options. Uh, but we came up with a list and a short list. And unfortunately, um, uh, Isilon were available in the UK and they, they'd actually got a member of staff um, stationed in London. Mm-hmm. And they were just starting starting up their sales organization. Um, I, I did explore the NetApp uh, Spinnaker option because that was the one I was most familiar with. They knew everybody in the, in the, in the um, organization quite well at that point. But because of the acquisition by NetApp, um, and they're then re, re, completely re-engineering the product. They weren't selling it. They'd basically taken it off the market and we just were supporting their existing um, install base. So um, Isilon were the, uh, the winner of that process. And then that's been quite a, uh, a long-term relationship. And Isilon remains, you know, remains, as you say, it remains the solution in place at MPC today, doesn't it? So, it is. I mean, I think they're on yeah. the fourth or fifth different iteration of mm. technologies from then. And, um, it's been a it's been a, a very good um, very solid solution. relationship, yeah. um, and they've they've gone from being an independent startup that hadn't floated to being eventually bought by EMC and then and then going private again with Dell. Yes, and of course, actually, I think you you probably had some similar teething pains with with acquisition processes there as as you might have had with NetApp and Spinnaker previously, in the sense that you know that's never an easy thing, is it? When when uh, when a new technology company takes over an existing no, it was it was never like it was never as disruptive as them taking the product off the market, thankfully. But um, yeah, there, there there were there were things like um, bumps in the roadmap and, and things that maybe didn't happen in the order that you think they would. Um, and at one point, they had a very, very good uh, cloud cloud offering that looked really promising. That got kind of diverted by the the acquisition um, because they they had a virtualized uh, instance that you could do training on, just get familiar with a new release of one FS. They they already had something that you could potentially play with, but there were there were issues with the the architecture there where they had some non-volatile memory components that were, were kind of critical to the product that you couldn't guarantee were going to be available in the cloud. And there wasn't really an easy analog between the, the non-volatile RAM that they had in their architecture. There, there was there was a generic replacement like for like for the software in the way that the whole thing worked available in, in the cloud architecture. So that became a bit of a stumbling block, which is a shame because they, they had a, a very scalable product that would have lent itself very well to a, a cloud architecture. Um, so unfortunately they didn't have something that, that, that became a cloud age competitor, uh, yeah, like right. some of the kind of cloud first products that we see out there like Cumulo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if we, um, let's talk a little bit about the, the sort of commercial landscape a little bit with MPC then back then. So you're, you're joining and, and building those architectures 2004 ish. What sort of size was MPC then? You mentioned it was a single site, so it was Central London, West End, presumably then. And how big? Yeah, well, the, the film site, the film site and the advertising site were very similar sizes. It was only a few uh, sort of subsequently that the film site took off. But um, again, I, I joined at an interesting time because at the time I joined, they were being sold by ITV. IT, ITV were the owners. It had been Carlton, and then because of the privatization and kind of the way that they'd split up the, the franchises, Colton had ended up acquiring lots of different regional TV businesses and became ITV. Um, and MPC had been owned by ITV or Colton prior to that for years previously. Um, 
But uh, as I said at the time, they were divesting it and trying to find a buyer to sell MPC. And um, uh, I got taken on about hmm, a month or two before they'd announced that Technicolor had purchased them. So um, that was an interesting transition. Um, and the, uh, the upshot of that was that the Technicolor was looking for MPC to expand and grow. So I think at the time there was something like maybe 400, 450 people um, on split the site. Ac split across advertising and, yeah, and split film. Across advertising yeah. and film. And I got a feeling film was around 150 to 200 people, depending on whether they were completely crewed for a project delivery or not. Um, and uh, it only took up a few floors on the, the 119 building. And I think they had one floor in 141 at that point. And so um, it was a, a kind of medium-sized facility for the period then. They'd, they'd done a lot of work on the Harry Potter franchises and they'd become um, a good crowd studio because they got their own crowd um, simulation software that they'd used on uh, kind of things like uh, Troy. Um, and they just they, they were just about to start Kingdom of Heaven or in the process of winning Kingdom of Heaven. So um, from there, they got... Charlie Me Chocolate Factory for the Umpa Lumpa crowd stuff, primarily, I guess. And so, so that was the kind of basis of their business. Um, uh, and, and soon after that, Technicolor started trying to encourage them to, to expand and maybe look at other sites. Um, and I'd, I'd always seen the, the advertising showreels from MPC in, in the trade shows like Seagraph and NAB. And they always had a very, very impressive, very high quality of work. Uh, and that's what attracted me to the to their business is is the the consistency and the quality and the longevity. Um, they just just keep producing very very high end work. High end work, yeah. I mean, it's quite a fecund period, isn't it? Actually, in the sort of history of the you know the London visual effects industry, because you know you're talking about SohoNet being incorporated around that point, and you know um, MPC delivering some of those projects like Kingdom of Heaven, and I think. Um, a lot of expansion and growth of the kind of London stroke UK VFX sector, I think is, is really beginning to kind of gather pace at that time, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. Soho Net was a lot earlier than that. That was when I was still in London at Cineside when it was founded. But yeah, the, um, I think what happened was initially it was, a, it was, there were very few places that were just film only. It was, it was when I left, it was really CFC and Cineside. And most of the other places like the mill and, um, MPC were primarily known for advertising and mm. frame-based production, and it started experimenting and, and doing bits of, bits of uh, effects work, um, and using using Cineon, uh as well as as well as Flame um, to 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 start learning how to do film effects, um, and. The issues with those those that, that kind of business back then was the consistency in being able to make the investments you needed to make. Um, <laughs> just thinking back to, to those periods when you were buying, a, say, a Silicon Graphics workstation and maybe, I don't know, Alias Power Animator or Cineon. That was a very big investment just to buy a single seat of that uh, hardware and software. You needed somewhere in the region of £50,000 to buy a yeah. workstation and the software for it. That's a good point, actually. I mean, Power Animator, again, for those I think many people listening would know, but that's that's the kind of progenitor of the Maya tool, isn't it? I yeah. mean, its alias is, you know, forerunner to what, what we would now call Maya, which is the de facto 3D application, really. Yeah. 
yeah and, and, um, this, and this 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 was well before um using uh x86 cpus or yeah open source software for for doing vfx it was all proprietary it was all silicon graphics high-end almost graphic supercomputer level um hardware and and the software was tens of thousands of, of dollars per seat so you, you had to be you had to be very confident or very bullish to to make that kind of investment to do the the kind of work that we're talking about and having that um that overhead to to, to carry between productions you wanted to make sure that you, you had a re relatively consistent pipeline of work to be able to make the payments or pay the depre depreciation on that that level of investment and it was only really um when harry potter came along yeah that you could consistently um, pin your hopes on getting some work every year to be able to justify that kind of investment. And that's, that's more or less what happened with the industries. It kind of grew up with having that as their bread and butter and then trying to win other work on the side of it. And that's, that's the business model really that, that, that David Jeffers at MPC pursued for, for growing um, the MPC film part of the business. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned Harry Potter because commercially it's, it's a big watershed, isn't it? I mean, that yeah. I, I, my recollection is that you know there were there was a lot of Harry Potter work around for ten years, you know, and you know MPC would be a chief vendor on one of those projects, but there would be shots delivered out in smaller quantity to smaller facilities, and that whole ecosystem kind of thrived on that work coming through. And as you say, then then beget you know the the ability to win other project work. I mean, to the point today where you know if we, if we chart you know the difference between then and now, I mean, you know, MPC are doing enormous film projects. You know, often the primary vendor on them, um, and um, and that that's often, you know, those are American projects, aren't they? You know, I mean, Harry Potter was considered, I think, to be largely British um, investment, but um, it's Harry Potter is we've got a lot to thank Harry Potter for, I guess, is what, yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah, it it, it, it it got the it got the industry to a, a point where it had enough enough size where if you wanted to put some work in the UK and use the UK tax credits, which is another component to this, is, is the yeah. financial incentives to do production work in London or in the UK, um, you, you could have some confidence that there would be enough capacity in the UK between Framestore and MPC and CineSight and, and the others that, that started up around that time to, to be able to deliver a decent amount of work and, and the volume and the timeframe that you've got. And so, so in, in, in some productions that, that these studios worked on, they more or less treated the UK or London as, as, as a single studio um, and just, just allocated the shots uh, to different studios. And because it was in, in walking distance between those different studios, um, they were able to do their rounds and, and keep on top of it uh, yeah. in much the same way they would within one studio in the States. Yeah, I've heard that said before, actually. It's a quite an interesting thing, isn't it? The geography of London, meaning that, you know, American clients could come over and, you know, the majority of the work was at NPC, but they had little bits, you know, different other facilities. You know, you could you could hop between them with relative ease and cover all your bases in a short space of time. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's it sort of it um sort of hyper professionalized the, the VFX sector in London, didn't it? The wave of Harry Potter work. I think it's it's kind of a, a critical moment. Um, yeah, I mean it, there there are multiple components to it. You, you you've got really, really good very, very technical production facilities at Pine and Shepparton uh, and then subsequently Leavesden. And you, you've, got, you've got really good professional on-site facilities for those, for those different filming locations. 
You've got London as a location itself or the UK as well. And then you've got the infrastructure that SohoNet provided to link up these different studios and having yeah. the studios more or less within stone's throw distance of each other. I think all those things contributed in their own way to make that happen. And then the tax credit just made it lucrative or more attractive to, to relocate shows out of the West Coast of the States and, and put them in the UK. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So moving forward a little bit then. So we talked about some of the history there in the early days and obviously, you know, MPC is a um, is a, a very, very big organisation now with more than one site. Um, but I think what's quite interesting and, you know, um, I know you won't be able to lift the lid on all of this, but with, with respect to what you can say, I mean, the, the outsourcing model and, and some of the global... Um, the global structure of the film department. I mean, that is quite a sophisticated pipeline now. And you were really at the forefront of that, weren't you, in terms of architecting that? So, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, what's going on in Bangalore and so forth. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that structure and how that came to be? Yeah, well, I kind of alluded to it a bit when Technicolor wanted NPC to grow. And so um, you couldn't really grow in the way that they were expecting it to grow without, without propagating sites. So I think the first place we looked at was Vancouver. There was already a, a technical facility in Vancouver that was, that was more to do with the kind of film post uh, industry that had grown a VFX service around the, the, the post-production part of the business. And so they had a location there um, and so the first project really was, or the most difficult part of the project was how do we start thinking of, of a multi-site pipeline and how do we propagate the technologies we've got in Wardle Street in London and, and build a replica of those in, in Vancouver. Um, now, one of, the, one of the things that we'd done prior to that was, was work on a, a show called The Corpse Bride, which was shot um, in a different studio in London. And that was a stop motion show. And the idea there was that they wanted to use some of our production tools um, for doing dailies on set and, and to be able to review work and maybe even do some of the compositing there to see how um, the stuff they were filming stop motion would, would work. And uh, there was initially a project there that um, tried to try to do some of the tools that we got standalone, but there was a realization as we went on that you couldn't really take the tools out of the studio environment because there were too many interdependencies and there was a lot of complexity in the way that they interacted to make it possible to deliver work on them. So what ended up happening was nearly, nearly the whole system team ended up out there trying to rebuild and replicate <laughs> what was back in the studio. Um, so it was like trying to transplant a, a vital organ out of the out of the building, <laughs> expecting it to succeed without the, the other rest of the body around it. So we'd already kind of been through that pain and knew it was not straightforward. Uh, you, you couldn't you couldn't get um, a little bit pregnant, as I used to say. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. So you're you're either going to have a baby <laughs> and build a new facility, um, or you're not. You can't you can't go. There's no there's no halfway house. So yeah. Um, it then became a question, well, how do we do this in the most uh, economic way possible um, without having to replicate the very complex um, evolution of, the, of the, the version that we've got in London? Um, unpicking the complexity and just getting down to the, the, 
the bare bones of what you actually needed um, was quite an exercise because there were a lot of superfluous bits that we maybe didn't need. But it was trying to figure out whether that was a critical part or not, and then how we actually transport that and, and translate it into a more compact and um, less rambling version, if you like. So there was a lot of a lot of head scratching and and uh, late nights working out how we would rationalize, if you like, what we'd already got and simplify it and try yeah, to make yeah. it so that you, you could do it without it taking months. Because I think we had quite a short period of time to get that working because we'd already won a show based on the um, the discounts and the, and the subsidies that Vancouver were offering. So um, that was a, uh, a massive learning curve again of, of how do you do this whole thing from scratch, but do it in a, in a much better engineered, more uh, concentrated version of the version we had in London. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask that question actually. You've answered it already, but I said I imagine there was a project driving it because um, uh, in visual effects, it's never the case that um, we think, oh, it would be quite nice to do that. Let's let's take some leisurely time and work out how it's done. There's always there's always a deadline, isn't there? Um, and they will come. Yeah, exactly. They're already here. They're knocking on the door. It'd be built. Exactly. Um, so so Vancouver came before Bangalore. I think there have been mutterings about Bangalore as well. Um, but yeah, my recollection, and this may be wrong, but my recollection is we definitely did Vancouver first, even though um, I think Bangalore was, was already something that we were kind of aware of. Yeah. And there'd been, there'd been um, we'd start, I think it started being a, an outsourcing relationship. And uh, there was a company over in Bangalore called Paprikas, which were doing um animated tv series for dreamworks and they'd basically become a big contractor for dreamworks and i think um we'd done a little bit of outsourcing of, of roto work with with a, a precursor to the company you work for now um, <laughs> ah. uh, the other escape <laughs> yes um, escape studios was that um, are we talking about prince of persia perhaps um no, the second Narnia film, is that right? Yeah. yeah yes. It was, it was Prince Caspian, I think. Prince yeah. Caspian. Sorry, I've got, I've got the wrong prince. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, my, it's my age, Martin. It happens. Sorry, the wrong prince. Prince Caspian. Yeah. I think it was the largest CG creature show for Daphne. Okay. And that was, that was a very, very big deal for, for the growth of NPC to be able to deliver that quality of creatures and that volume of creatures. I and mean, there, 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 there were some shots there with huge numbers of creatures and there were they were hero character, large frame creatures mm. um, delivered in photo real quality, um, where it was literally the hero. It was Aslan. It was, it was a huge amount of um, of work that went into those shows to be able to deliver that quantity of, of, of furry mammals um, on screen at once, and that was a huge growth period um, for us, uh, where that's where the, where the that's when the render farm really scaled up. Um, yeah, we kind of we kind of ran out of capacity in our in our Wardle Street building and had to start figuring out well, how do we do this when we go off site um, as well. So we had to have an off site render farm just because we ran out of of room and and um, electrical power on the yeah. site we were in. Um, um, it's it's a it's a it's a truism, isn't it? I guess that the the, the really large scale facilities like MPC and others of that size tend to be owing to scale and the size of the projects tend to be pushing the technology sooner than 
the smaller studios. So, for example, there's lots of smaller studios today that are talking about, you know, co-locations and data centers and having things off-site. But actually, your mm. render farm had been off-site since when, can we say? I mean, how you did that quite early, didn't you? I want to say 2007. 2007, right. I think, I think it was somewhere around then. Um, and again, there was a there was a technical facility out near Heathrow Airport. It was a an old film lab in West Drayton, and um, we were allocated some space. And it turned out to be what was a chemical store for photochemical storage. Um, and it was ba it's basically built like a bunker. Um, so there's no windows, um, just just a, a kind of dank <laughs> stone building. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we, we we got to build a machine room from from basically very bare bones. It was just a, a solid concrete floor, concrete and stone walls um, with a flat roof, um, which was very handy uh, for, for doing things like uh, air conditioning. So that was our first kind of prototype built from scratch, high performance computing data center. We'd got a, a very nice um, data center or machine room. Um, in Wardle Street that had been built when they'd moved into Wardle Street. Um, but that was more engineered towards video engineering for commercials um, and wasn't really built for the kind of intensity and the kind of uh, cooling and power requirements that a, a dense compute farm has. So there, there were issues with the density of, of the installations that we needed to put in there and the quantity of CPUs in the, in the space that we had. Um, so it wasn't ideal. Uh, it, it subsequently got adapted and, and upgraded. But when we started filling entire 45U racks with, with one U, two CPU servers, um, that density, well, to start with, we started running out of power and had to root more power into those. And then we discovered that we couldn't really call it unless you really got very serious about hot aisle and cold aisle containment and uh, started thinking about the engineering of airflows and things. Let's talk about the rendering then, because that was <clears throat> in a bit more detail if we can, because that was the sort of um, nominal theme for our discussion today. Um, sure. What, um, I mean, what, 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 with whatever metric makes the most sense, really? I mean, give us a yardstick between, you know, what the size of or scale of the rendering operation was, you know, mid noughties you know, around the time we've been talking about, and and what it what it had become very recently, you know, just mm. pre, pre the pandemic, you know, with with the most recent projects. I mean, it's it's grown to a huge scale, hasn't it? It has. I mean, again, there, there was another technology there that was really the gateway for that. Um, uh, Intel had, had decided to go with a completely different 64-bit architecture. But back in the days when Pentiums were 32-bit, you effectively had a limit of 4 gig. Uh, mm -hmm. You'd have two single-core 32-bit processors on a, on a server motherboard. And you could, you could put 4 gig on them. And then once you started wanting to put more memory into them, you'd run out of address space. And it would try and do clever tricks with the way that memory arithmetic worked, but it wasn't really what you wanted. You wanted, you wanted way more than four gig. Um, so the 64-bit architecture that AMD came out with, uh, which was just an extension to the 32-bit architecture, so you could still run 32-bit versions of OSs on it, and you could still run 32-bit software, but you had the, the capability to, to get a 64-bit Linux distribution and put those on them as the software became available, allowed you a, a kind of easier transition. So rather than just going um, from one to the other or having, having two different OSs running in your facility, 
you could get to a critical mass of 64-bit hardware, um, test the 64-bit stuff on your on your platform whilst you're still running 32-bit uh, on the majority of your hardware, and then transition um, over to the 64-bit version of the OS and get that extra memory availability uh, and address space um, without really compromising too much on performance and, and not not committing yourself fully to the 64-bit way of doing things. So it was AMD that really made that possible. Uh, yeah. And that really kind of then just blew the doors off. You suddenly went from having this, this limit of, of artificial, well, it was kind of a, an artificial limit, if you like, of four gig. Per core or per CPU? Four per, gig. Per server. Per, per <laughs> server, okay. So, so <laughs> Seems incredible to imagine now, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. so all of a sudden overnight, people were buying um for uh, sort of eight and 16 gigs uh, uh, render renderers and it just like wow well what, what can we do with this and then and then the numbers of cores suddenly started going up so you went from buying two cpus with two core with a core each and all of a sudden you could get multiple cores as well so that 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 was the the gateway to the, the kind of modern rendering revolution if you like is that you could buy multi-core cpus multi-processor multi-core and you could put ridiculous amounts of ram in them um and, and start doing really more complicated renders. So yeah. that that was the the kind of starting pistol, if you like. That was the thing that really started pushing it. And again, that was around the time I moved back to the UK. I remember looking at 64-bit and evaluating these AMD CPUs for ILM back in 2003. And then um, the UK was kind of just starting to catch up at that point. And we started, started buying 64-bit stuff at, at MPC as soon as I arrived. With an eye to the the sixty four bit versions of Maya and Renderman and stuff that were, were going to be coming, and so um, I mean maybe that is the metric that's fun to, fun to compare. But um, four gig per server back then, um, <laughs> what would it be now? Uh, well, it's it, it's usually you, you generally look at four gig per core. It's still four 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 gig per core or two gig per core maybe. Mm. So you you kind of you kind of match. So if you've got a a 64 core system, then it's it's at least 128, probably 256 gig. Yeah. Um, and then you you allocate that into, or if you've got tractor, then you, you, you kind of divide it up to two or four blades, and maybe have 64 um, gig per render instance. Um, yeah, so it's orders of magnitude difference, isn't it? But um, yes, yeah, obviously. You know, but the complexity and the sophistication of the effects has, has massively increased as well. Yeah, if, yeah. If you look at the early Harry Potter films and compare them with the end of just that that sequence, the, the quality yeah. and the the amount, the sheer volume of of effects that are in each film just massively increase as the yeah. As the, I mean, if you the show evolves, as you say, if you if you again just use that as a uh, you know as a um, as a sampling exercise, yeah. If you look at Harry Potter one um, and the final film, it's um, I mean it's night and day, isn't it, in terms of the complexity and the sophistication of the effects and the amount of them. I mean, what I'd be what do you reckon is the number of VFX shots in the first film compared to the number of VFX <laughs> shots in the shot today? It's probably it's probably fifty shots, isn't it? Versus you know, well, no, I, th I think I think even when I was at, at um, when I when I was at Cinesite, there were shows that we'd get that would have maybe fifty to hundred shots on the really yeah. big shows. Um, but by the kind of, uh, I don't know, 2008, well, I guess, I guess it was, it was Prince Caspian and that was, I think that was nearly a thousand shots. Yeah. 
it was it was most of the film. It was like two thirds of the film had yeah. an element of, of CGI in it. And with something like a Marvel production, that would now be you know sort of com- in a common order of the day, wouldn't it? Yeah, One, two thousand shots film. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so tracking the development of some of that technology and you talked about the, you know, the 64 bit extension and, and the new CPUs and the explosion in, you know, cores on the, on the architecture and how that drove things. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about the, how the actual rendering software has evolved in tandem with that? Cause it feels to me a bit like, um, I think I'm right in saying that back then you would have been using render man as your renderer for yeah. most of your big project. It was, it was very difficult to do, uh, ray traced projects. I mean, advertising used it, used ray tracing quite a lot, particularly for shiny cars and things like that. Yeah. So that, that there was a, there was, there was ray tracing was definitely going on and mental ray was, was probably the, the brand leader back then and, and remained so for a number of years. But, um, there was a lot of difficulty in, in those technologies back then partially just because you really, really needed a lot more resource to deliver the show just because um, computationally it was, a lot, it was a lot harder to do ray tracing than it was to do raster-based rendering, which is why yeah. RenderMan had a market dominance for so long, just because it was more efficient. Um, and, and then there were other things. I think, I mean, things like motion blur, I remember being an issue with ray tracing, um, and that worked much better with, with, with raster-based RenderMan. Um, and, and there being issues to do with compatibilities between different pieces of software and the translation of, of the way that things worked. I think we did, I think we, we, we primarily, well, pretty much every show have been delivered using RenderMan, but we worked on a, a show called Poseidon that was obviously a, a, a water-based show. It was a, a massive um, passenger liner that was, that was a, a the venue for a disaster movie, so it was basically. It was a remake, wasn't it, of uh, <laughs> good old Kurt Russell remaking the old uh, Gene Hackman classic? I think was the uh, yeah. was what was yeah. going on there. Yeah, exactly. So, so that that required um, for the for the fluid effects um, to to be used using ray tracing, and that show was a a very very difficult learning period. Um, there was a lot of very very challenging technical issues with that show. And with new technologies, and, and it's a consistent thing that I've seen seen with with these new technologies and with certain certain transitions, you get to this kind of um, critical mass where you think you can deliver a show, but you, when you start trying to use the technologies, you find that it's, it's only ninety percent there, mm. and that last ten percent that you need ends up taking ninety percent of the budget or ninety percent of the time. Yeah. to actually deliver just because that, that last 10% you need to deliver the show is just so difficult to do with that new technology. Um, and that was definitely the case for that show. And that, I think that was one of the reasons why it was so painful to do that it took a long time for, for MPC to look at ray tracing again, just because right. it left so many scars in so many people's <laughs> consciousnesses, just, just getting that show out the door. That's quite a fascinating insight, actually, I think, really. I mean, I think, as you say, you know, it, it, it's... it's it, it's a characteristic of being at the bleeding edge, isn't it? You know, there's that final 10% is, is consuming 90% of the time and budget on, on trying to get that final. Yeah. And you have to, you have to find a way of, of, uh, cheating it or, or just getting to the point where it's an acceptable quality just to be able to make a deliverable shot. Um, and it, it just takes all of your, all of your intellectual capacity and creative ideas to get to that point. Yeah. Um, and it, it 
it may be something that you could you could do um, relatively simply using the, the previous technologies, but just for some reason there's there's some there's some difference. Yeah, in the new one. I mean, I think you know my again, you know, speaking a bit like a layman here. I think you know just as a as a lazy spectator of of entertainment. You know, I think water was uh, you know and oceans were one of the you know, one of the last great obstacles of visual effects, weren't they? I think, you know, even back to the time you're speaking about, it wasn't guaranteed that you could pull that off. Whereas I mm. think I can, I, I, I mean, I'm sure if I put my mind to it, I can think of a couple of recent films where there've been lots and lots of ocean and water effects where it, it seems to have moved on significantly, actually, that particular that particular technique. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's a lot like, it's a lot like all the innovation that happens in the industry is that, is that one or two uh, studios will, We'll spend a huge amount of time um, developing a solution to a problem and eventually that solution will find itself in, in a in a commercial product yeah and then once it becomes generally available everybody can do it but there's usually a, a bit of a lag between one studio cracking that problem and having custom and, written something and yeah. then having something that's that's then a generally available product it's, it's just turning turning something that's more of a um, a lab experiment into something that's actually a finished product. Um, yeah, yeah. Usually it's been engineered just to deliver a specific set of shots rather than a generic solution to a problem. Um, yeah. And you find that with all kinds of different technologies that have, that have, that have come out and you, you have a, a spate of films that <laughs> exploit that, that, that new look or that new thing. Um, and then they move on to the, whatever the next difficult problem is. Yeah, yeah, um, and just picking up on on the, the sort of um, um, the, the different renderer um, technologies we discussed there. Again, I mean, lots lots of listeners would know this, others not. I mean, uh, ray tracing. You know, correct me if I'm wrong here with my very simplistic explanation, but you know, a, a ray trace renderer is one that calculates the way light bounces across or moves through objects in a physically correct fashion. Um, whereas raster-based or rays renderers mm -hmm. are, in effect, cheating that with clever algorithmic um, solutions. Yeah, and then you have the illumination and the lighting and the yeah. complexities of, of making it look natural, even though um, it's not doing it in a natural system. Natural way. Compared with, compared with global illumination or, or some other model that, that, that is, is notionally a simple, simple way of, of lighting something. And do you think, um, so I mean, you know, Renderman was 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 your chosen renderer back then, and is a is a raised renderer. And um, I think you know there's been an enormous reliance on Arnold across the UK visual effects sector in the recent years, which is a ray tracer. Um, is, would, I mean, is it fair to say that that's really only been possible because of the the, the increasing capability of the hardware? You know, multi-core, high-speed yeah, CPUs, um, RAM. Renderman does do ray tracing now. That, that is it does today, that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, that is something the MPC have used a lot, and that was that was the, the transition for them. But um, I think I think again, it's one of these. Um, I, I kind of alluded to this um, when we were talking about it earlier. Is it, it was it was more the commercial side of things where where MPC commercials were using um, mental ray for doing car commercials, and so they had some expertise or more, maybe more expertise in it. Um, but it was very very good for that solution for doing shiny cars. Um, but that combined with um, multi-core CPUs, because because you needed that much more oomph um, mm. and com computational capacity, and the way that basically 
chip fabrication hit the buffers and you couldn't crank the clock handle anymore and you got to a limit of around four gigahertz where you could no longer cool or economically power a chip um, because of that 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 engineering limit all of a sudden the only way you could really add more power to a cpu was by adding more cores so they went from making faster and faster chips to basically chips with more or less the same same clock speed but just by adding more real estate and replicating the cores and adding more cash so um it was that was the main driver i think was that was that you could you could parallelize and exploit the the multi cpu architecture of these new chips much more efficiently um, using ray tracing and so that made ray tracing a more accessible technology rather than it being very expensive to do and you needed lots and lots more machines to do it you could just buy um, a smaller number of machines just with multi-CPU yeah. capabilities. Yeah. And then GPUs came along and, and made it, again, uh, much more interesting uh, from an economics point of view, just because they had an embarrassingly large number of parallel cores in them, albeit not general purpose ones, but ones that were very suitable for doing ray tracing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, speaking about, you know, the the, the individual instances of, of render nodes and stuff then, um, I mean, I, I remember having conversations with you, you know, in the past about, you know, um, configuring, you know, render nodes, you know, and there was this view that, you know, there was, and this is more of a commercial question actually than a technical one, um, you know, there was a sweet spot in terms of, you know, number of cores and the speed mm -hmm. of a CPU against its price, if you like, a price per performance metric, over which it wasn't too economically sensible to to go because, you know, arguably you could get the, what I'm trying to say in in a, an easy way of saying this is it wasn't it wasn't like by the biggest fastest thing you can possibly get that that what that didn't tend to be the way that, that large scale render farms were built mm. um is that still the case do you, you know is that still the rationale that you would use today do you think or or is it now has the have the renderers changed the way you think about that a little um mm. you usually what you're buying when you're buying a farm or you're buying an upgrade to your farm you're buying a volume of compute capacity and that's the way i think about it is, is that yeah. you're buying a capability to deliver a certain amount of work and you can deliver that work by buying a, a smaller number of very very fast computers or a larger number of cheaper computers mm. and it's it's about getting that balance right and because because the fabrication of chips is is a fairly generic thing you get a yield um, and they talk about yield from, from, from chip fabrication. And it's pretty much whatever chip you're buying, it's the same chip. Um, and all that they've done is they've tested that chip. And some of the cores may not have come out of the fabrication process working properly. Um, and some of, the, some of them may not work at a higher clock speed. So what they do is they, they test the, year, the, the, the chips they harvest from the fabrication process. And only the very, very high-end um, perfect chips that come out can run all the calls at the highest clock speed. So you, so you end up with a bell curve of yield out of your fabrication. So the really fast, really multi-core super-duper chips tend to be much more expensive, expensive just because of yield. Because Is that scarcity. right? So, so that's, I, I, I genuinely didn't know that. So, that's, so, so if we look at the Intel family processor, for example, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to talk about model numbers, but let's say we've got an 18 core chip that the cores run at 3.5 gigahertz or something. And then we've got a 
an eight core chip where they run at 2.2 or whatever. In fact, it was more likely to be the other way around, isn't it? That the higher clock speed is on the lower core count. But uh, is that right? That they, the fundamentally that those are manufactured as the same thing, and yet well, the, the crop they're, they're, yields they're different the, performance. Yeah, they're all the same design. Um, yeah, it, it may be marketing, um, but I think the, the simplest the simplest aren't, uh, solution is that the, these things are, are grown. If you if you like, there's a you're, you're effectively growing crystals. You're 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 growing substrate on on a on a in an industrial process and that isn't necessarily perfect and contaminant free and so you have issues with with your yield so um most of i mean same most places are buying um xeon sp type chips so they're basically mm -hmm. um designed to run one or two on a motherboard and they've got a variety of quantity of cores each of those those cores is the same i mean they're, they're all the same design and you, you you may have anything from four to 32 or more more now these days um cores available on it on that chip you're not going to have <clears throat> um multiple different production lines for that product you just make the same thing and then depending on how well it works you you enable or disable those cores and yeah. lo and behold you get the art you, you get the products range that's available and the, they're priced accordingly i mean part um, of that's a marketing and, and kind of commercial decision but underneath the the wrapper those those pieces of silicon if you put them under the microscope the same thing well that, that that's that is fascinating because i mean I, I i foolishly thought that you know if you were manufacturing an intel xeon 6136 chip with you know 12 cores at 3.0 gigahertz that was that was being made over there, a bit like you're making the Porsche Carrera, and then over there, if you're making the eight-core variant with, you know, two gigahertz, you're making the the VW Golf over there. That's what I thought was happening, but that's clearly not the way that they're, they're manufactured, um, which is it's interesting. Not, it's not a, it's not a, not a snowflake artisanal kind of design process. They're just churning out millions of these things. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so, so yeah, so the answer to the question was that you you do think that the renderers have pushed things maybe more in the direction of having a higher core, higher speed chip than perhaps you might have been purchasing in quantity five, six years ago. So, so here's, here's something else that happened. So I was talking about the introduction of 64 bit and what AMD had got. And then a couple of years later, AMD got overtaken again by Intel. Intel caught up and then surpassed them. And then yeah. AMD kind of fell away um, and ended up with a smaller and smaller amount of the market and then until relatively recently hadn't really been competitive mm. in the last few years they've suddenly started getting interesting again but because of that there wasn't really a lot of competition i, I guess their main comp competitors had been at the lower end um for, for kind of low power consumption cpus with arm and then and then with the gpu coming in and offering um, a competitor, particularly in VFX and machine learning, using GPU. But yeah. in terms of a general purpose compute unit, Intel had kind of got their own monopoly in most applications for computers. And I guess it had been more, more the, the non-computer areas that had started eroding their market share in terms of smartphones and tablets and, and, and more portable devices yeah where where people had, had started innovating more and where arm had kind of got a, a, a foothold so um because of that 
what I what I found over the years was was rather than the, when a, when a new single core uh, multiprocessor came out, so it's a, a, a Xeon type product would come out, it would come out at a higher price level than the previous generation, and then once it matured, it would be more or less the same price point. So year on year, thanks to Moore's law, you'd get more compute for your money. Yeah. My experience the last few years, particularly particularly with the multi-core kind of growth, has been that you, you're not getting that improvement in price performance. You're, you're paying more for your more cores, and you're not you're not paying a, a kind of uniform amount. So um, rather than paying a, a, say a thousand pounds for a CPU, and then and then a couple of years later when a new one came out, you pay the same amount, but you get maybe twice the number of cores for the money. That stopped working, and so mm-hmm. it became more and more expensive um, upgrading your farm. And um, you've got in your farm maybe you've got four or five year old CPUs that are still relatively useful. Okay, you can't you can't run as many simultaneous cores because they're not as as big a, a chip and don't have as large a core count. Those individual cores are still quite performant, so you're mainly paying for electricity at that point. Yeah. So so they they've not really been pushed in terms of Price performance performance has gone up because they're, they're, they're producing more cores, but the, the new instructions and the, the innovation they're coming up with are getting more and more niche. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting that general performance improvement that you used to get in the good old days of 32-bit Xeons. Um, and so, and, so it's become a, a quite an expensive thing to do. And do you think that that again? That's interesting. I think it, it naturally tees me up for the next question, which was coming. Um, was coming anyway it's um do has that phenomenon do you think therefore is you saying you're not quite getting the value for money now actually with the innovation year on year has that meant that the the feasibility of using cloud for large-scale rendering has it pushed you in that direction more quickly well i think there's always been this issue with um delivering large shows that Mm. most most studios feel or have experienced where um all of the decision-making process gets pushed towards the end of the show. And um, most of the deliveries are pushed towards the end of the show. And then all of a sudden, you, you've, you've kind of delivered the hero shots and you've got the look locked down and you've then got to crank out the rest of the shots in the sequence or the really difficult shots that people have been di- sort of umming and ahhing about and finally approved. Or there's been some delay in turnover or reshoot. And you've got this massive bulge in production that you have at the end of end of making a delivery on a VFX show. And that requires you to build much more capacity than you maybe need most of the time. So you have this, um, the, the stock in trade phrase is building the cathedral for Christmas Eve, where <laughs> that's the only day in the calendar where, where you've got a bum on every seat. So, so because of that and, and the, the way that the business is, you don't want to be carrying that depreciation for the times when you don't need it, which is most mm. of the time. So it lends itself very well to burst capability, and it's very interesting for, for delivering shows. But you are effectively paying over the odds, in my mind, for, for that capability, because um, the cloud providers have to have to build that cathedral and hope to fill it every mm. day. Uh, and so they've, they've got to get a return on their investment too. So um, I think there's a cost there, and I think there's an opportunity that you've got to optimize your mix of, of owned versus cloud and, and getting that proportion right is possibly one of the biggest challenges most VFX houses have um, 
in terms of their render capability is is how do you balance what you can keep busy most of the time versus what you what you can economically for a short period of time sustain in it in it with the cloud provider yeah and, and, it, I, and is there a metric for that i mean would you say for instance that i mean i've heard it said you know uh, if you're the, the, the on-premise render farm that you own and that you, you you bought out of you know capital expenditure you've got that that's got to be running for at least 80 percent of the time for it to be viable um cost wise at scale or some such i mean is there is yeah. there a do you have a view on that it will vary i mean it depends what you pay for your render farm it depends yeah. how much you pay for electricity and the space you put it in um uh, yeah, so obviously all those, so, all those so, very and, and then also there's a huge variability in the in the, the electricity cost. If if you if you've got a co-located five nines high end data center where you're paying for loads of extra infrastructure mm. and you're effectively paying your electricity um, rate marked up with all that extra stuff because you're buying it from the premises. It's a bit like making a phone call in a five star hotel. <laughs> you aren't going to be paying what you'll pay. Um, on your mobile for that phone call yeah um, so so there, there's there's a huge variability in that and, and also like i said if you're buying one or two um render farm servers um in a small startup versus a big global technology company of the likes of google where they can more or less take an entire production run from intel um or, or maybe even start designing and building their own products. There's a massive difference in the costs uh, between something at that scale versus the, the, the small scale. So <clears throat> where that, where that uh, cost tilts is, is varies enormously. And presumably that was a bit of a moving target. I mean, in your role, that was, you know, you had a sort of a strategic overview of infrastructure delivery for features, didn't you? So, you know, you must have been wrestling with that from, I don't know, month to month, quarter to quarter, as, as those goalposts sort of started to move around. Well, a lot of that was operational. I mean, mm. I, think, I, think, I think from an infrastructure point of view, I could provide the tool mm. to be able to do comp comparison of the costs um, between those different inputs. So, so knowing what your electrical costs were and, and what, your, what your CapEx costs would be. And, and, then, and then it's about comparing that with what you're paying from the cloud, the big cloud service providers. And then making a judgment call of how confident you are about your order pipeline and how busy you can keep it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know whether because of the scale, you were probably making decisions earlier on in the phase of a project. But you know, there, there may have been that this may have also happened at MPC, and you could potentially say if it did. But I mean, certainly with smaller studios that that we're um, that we partner with, you know, there is this phenomenon where uh, you know leaving cloud out of the picture for the moment where, you know, it gets to the sort of the scramble sort of phase at the end of a project where you're up, you're up against a deadline, everything's very high pressure. And there's, there's the sort of, you know, the 11th hour call for a low ball render notes, um, you know, and somebody's got to pay for those. Now, if, if you've, um, I, you know, and my, my understanding is that what used to happen is that, you know, the studio would, would probably view that, you know, we've got to get that job out of the door to deadline, do or die. And we, we're going to buy those extra render those to ensure that we do that. Um, and there's enough, there's enough, we've made, you know, there's enough, there's enough money in the budget for us to absorb that and just do it. Um, whereas I feel like the conversation now with cloud rendering, because you are being billed per, were you being billed per minute or per, per second or per minute billing, I would have thought for you, for you. No, it's, I, think, I think most of the, most of the cloud providers bill per hour. Per hour. So, so it's per core instance per hour. Per hour. Card, yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, that's a much more transparent cost in terms of, well, it was that change that the client made on that particular part of that shot. And that's meant we've had to do that amount of rendering. And there's a very, very transparent cost for that because we've done it all in the cloud. I mean, is have, do you think that's changed the landscape of the commercial dynamic whereby that, that now that cost might get passed on to the client where previously it wouldn't have done is kind of what I was describing. Uh, I think that's a very difficult thing from my point of view to answer because I, mm. I, I was, I was lucky enough not to have to have, have that kind of dealing. Um, on the client side, as it were, yeah, yeah. actually yeah. dealing direct with the client. That was that was more on the producer side of, of the decision making process. Mm. So, I think I think there's a capability there where you could potentially structure a, a VFX deal in that way, and certainly it makes sense for you to understand what your own internal costs are, and that's something I've done within within Technicolor yeah. is understand what it costs in a like for like basis, for instance, so you can see how you can compare your on-premise costs with what the offerings are from, from the various different service providers. So you can see where you stack up and, and then what an incremental cost would look like. But there's also time-scaled issues with that as well. I mean, if you're getting to the to crunch time and making the show delivery and you're waiting for um, purchasing approval and manufacturing, because most of these things are, are built to order and yeah. then shipping costs and then any delays in customs and shipping, and it, 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 it can be too late quite quite easily months mm. from the delivery day line just because the amount of lead time it is between you saying you, you or identifying you need this additional incre increment to actually delivering it and being able to use it. So, I mean, that's something else that, that that's, that's constantly evolved over the period of time that I've been working in the industry is, that, is the timescales are just getting more and more compressed because the studios don't want their, their, their investment not making money for them. Yeah, for a long period of time. So they want to get it to market as soon as they can, which means you've got a much bigger spike at the end of your show to deliver it because it's a much shorter period of time. It just concentrates the amount of work into a smaller and smaller time. So I think I think it's it, 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 it isn't necessarily a complete solution, but I think it's a very, very large component to most solutions that, that most VFX houses are using now is, is incorporating some element, element of that. Yeah. And it's... It's it's a very very complex decision making process on how you right size your studio mm. um, for most of the time, and then and then can strategically deploy a cloud render solution for delivering specific chunks of work at specific timings. And I think I think that's uh, a very interesting area of business to be in. Yeah, and I mean, is your opinion then that you know because you experience from different sides of that discussion? I mean, is your experience then? You know the the the, the best or richest mix currently is a is a mixture of the two. Some I think some so. of on premise capability. Yeah, and, I think yeah. so. I think I think I think having some stuff on on sites always very useful. Um, there's a limit, particularly in in the areas of of London that most studios are in, mm. to what you can actually accommodate. It isn't necessarily the cheapest thing to put into, say, Soho. Um, just because of the rents and and, and the, the, the availability of power, mm. and then Westminster's um, building regulations about what air conditioning you can use and where mm. you can put it. So there were too many constraints maybe to, to do that, and because of tele telecommunications deregulation and fibre and the bandwidth that's available, um, having having some capability maybe outside at the M25 would be a much more sensible way to put where that compute is if you're going to own it and operate it yourself. Um, 
NPCs, as I said, were, were originally at West Strait near Heathrow, and then it moved to, to Pinewood. Um, the technical added facility there, and subsequently that's been closed, and it's moved more to a, a kind of third-party place. But um, finding finding a, a, a decent um, colo type place again, that's that's a, a very important and uh, key plank to your your success is is knowing what you need and what you should be paying for it, and and some of the drawbacks with that. A lot of the older data centres, for example aren't necessarily built to take the density that you want. Um, the power density is that you, if you fill, a, fill an entire rack, um, you, you can usually surpass the, the electrical um, supply of, of those racks. There may be a limit to how much power they can supply to each rack or, or, or cooling um, capacities per rack. So you end up only sparsely populating the, the racks that you take. Um, and increasingly, you're finding that the data centers are based on power consumption more than space. Again, just because that's the the restrictive commodity. Um, yeah. There isn't enough power to completely populate every rack with a render farm machine. No. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that in itself is interesting. The fact that you would, you know, distinguish between you know older and newer data centers because I'm probably only familiar with the the more recent ones. But I think yeah, that's an interesting area of discussion on its own. Actually, we've got a. I think we're going to have a, a podcast episode on the whole colo uh, power mm. connectivity networking side of things because it is increasingly, um, increasingly, you know, something that more and more customers are wrestling with. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's this proliferation of, of CPU cores. I mean, you can fit more CPU um, real estate as the as the CPU manufacturing technologies get smaller and smaller. You can concentrate more components onto a smaller piece of silicon, but you still want to cool it and power it. And the power envelopes of each of those devices is going up and up and up and up, um, which is, again, I guess another interesting differentiator between the, the Intel and the, the AMD offering is the AMD offering. Those larger chips are huge power consumers. They're more like GPUs in terms of the power profile they've got. Yeah. So, so putting two of those into a, a server, um, does that make sense? If you've got 64 cores, do you need to? <laughs> Should yeah. you just have one? Can, yeah. you put, can you put four of those into a one new quadro type box? Um, that you, so you've got, you've got eight CPUs in um, two U. Could you even call that? <laughs> Is it practical powering it? I mean, it's, there's, uh, there's all kinds of different interesting questions yeah, that no, need absolutely. to ask about I those things. I remember having a conversation with you a couple of years ago about that very, you know, that focused on that that very that very, you know, that that particular element actually in terms of, you know, we were working within a a specific power TDP for the CPUs in question because mm. you know that that was critical, wasn't it? I think yeah. in terms of what, what was being done. And again, and that that kind of fits into the economics we were talking about earlier about where that sweet spot is in that yield mm. curve is, is that there's a there's a clock speed and a, a CPU core count component as well as the, as well as the power uh, yeah. and the costs that you're paying because the power and the, and the cpu cost are probably the two biggest variables in that in that equation yeah absolutely um great stuff look there's a couple more things i want to want to just put to you before we start to wrap up um um you know that are related i mean one is to continue the rendering discussion a little bit but with respect to the storage and the other is to you know we'll come back to this in a second but to ask you about you know the future really but um we've talked a lot about the rendering itself but obviously 
cloud rendering, you know, becoming very much part of the pipeline and, and, and at large scale, you know, for you at Technicolor, that places quite significant pressures, doesn't it, on the infrastructure storage wise. Um, I'm just interested in some of your observations on that, because obviously you need to be able to replicate your file system in the cloud, mm. to reference your assets on-prem. And, you know, there's an awful lot of, you know, bandwidth connectivity required to do that. Um, you obviously were an Iceland customer and I think we're relatively well placed to build out that architecture. But I mean, that, that presumably posed significant challenges once you started rendering in the cloud at a very, very high yeah. scale. It's, 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 not, it's not dissimilar to what happened when the, the 64-bit CPUs came on. All of a sudden you could have more memory in your, in your servers. But when the cloud became available, um, all of a sudden you've got this massive compute facility available to you and you've got the pressure to deliver more work in a shorter period of time. And so the, the temptation is to open the taps and just try and put everything in your render queue on the farm at once Yeah, and um, melt your storage effectively. So, <laughs> That's what I meant, yeah. <laughs> um, over the years, because of, because of the, the types of renders that, that um, MPC had experienced, they'd experienced kind of maxing out you, you, the performance of your storage. I mean, large, we talked about fluid simulations, large fluid sims. Are notorious for, for killing your renders, um, particularly when you've got like uh, a, a decent sized render farm. You can affect you can affect a very a very useful denial of service attack on your own storage just by submitting too many frames of the wrong type at once, uh, just because of the intensity of the IOPS going through um, and the aggregation effect you get from all the different servers chewing on the storage at once. So. We're already acutely aware of the limitations that you could potentially have. So there are all, all kinds of conversations you can have around how you best use the cloud. So presuming you've got some kind of constraint on bandwidth and you've got some kind of constraint on your storage and you're not at the moment thinking about putting your storage in the cloud, that depends on, on having a farm in a decent um, latency round trip between your on-prem storage and the CPUs in the farm. So it needs to be location geographically relatively close mm. um, and because most places using Linux and NFS is, is the kind of go-to protocol it's you need decent NFS performance for it to make sense and then you don't necessarily want to have um, a massively storage intense render going on so you want to pick and choose your renders if, you, if you're doing a, a very intense type render so you're doing a a 30 layer comp with with uh, 30, 30 plates in and one plate out. Um, you don't want all those reads going over your wide area network connection to the cloud. You want to do that on-prem. So it makes much more sense to do that sort of work using your on-prem farm. Right. And then putting the 25 hours per frame render out in the cloud because yeah. that's going to be chewing on the storage a lot longer per read. Well, hopefully, well, anyway. Yeah, so an intelligent division of the labor, essentially. Yeah, so, yeah. so you, you, try, you try and put the compute intense, really, really data not intense renders in the cloud um, and the really IO intense and not compute intense stuff closer to home on-prem or at Ecolo, maybe. Yeah, and okay. And you're very sensible about you allocate that. But there are, there are, there are tricks that you have to have. I mean, if, if you're going to be putting a significant amount of stuff in the farm and, and it's going to be maybe 50 to 100% more capacity than you're used to handling on-prem, obviously your storages and maybe other parts of your infrastructure are going to start creaking and not being able to cope with that massive increase in load that it's going to experience when you open the taps up. So you can do things like using intelligent caching. So 
um, back in the earlier kind of growth phase of, of the business, um, uh, I guess I guess it would have been the early days of solid state storage. Um, my friends that had started up Spinnaker ages ago, back when I was at ILM, started another company called Avia. And, yeah. Um, we started exploring using NFS caches on-prem, which is way before using using cloud, when we were using a, an off-site data, file, a data center. Um, and we started using caching there. So we were using NFS caching there to reduce the load from our link on-prem to off-prem to the colo um, by using Avir caching when we had physical Avirs. And that worked up to a point. But again, you've got to be very careful about how much uh, the data footprint is on the shots that you're rendering. Um, and, and be very smart about the way that you um, you allocate your work so that you don't have data intense work because you can very quickly in, uh, go beyond the capacity of those caches and, and, and end up thrashing everything. Um, yeah, I mean, at every stage really with, with these, every stage with the, the, the sort of scale out rendering or the level of scale of rendering that, that you were doing, it really is, isn't it, consistently understanding the absolute limit of every every component technology within the pipeline. Yeah, you, really? you, you do get beaten with a very big stick when you get it wrong. Um, so you, you, have to be, you have to be very careful about the way you do it. It's a little bit like playing uh, Buckaroo or Kaplunk maybe, where you're, you're, you're just testing it and, and pushing it a little bit every time into the point where it suddenly stops working. And then um, it's figuring out what you did to break it and, and, then, and then what you do to, to make it work again. Yeah, yeah. But, but getting back to the question about the, 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 the scale of the cloud, Avia caches became virtualized and available in the, in the cloud. And so they became part of the solution for doing more with the cloud. Again, in conjunction with understanding the shots you're doing, the kind of data footprint you've got and, and using the caching accordingly. Um, but that, that certainly allowed us to continue to use purely on-prem storage and, and, and increase our size of, of cloud utilization. Yeah, Avia has, I think, been acquired by Microsoft, hasn't it? So it now sits within the Microsoft Azure yes, cloud yes. family. Which, which, is, um, which is an interesting way of them trying to, to take more VFX clients, I, I would guess. Yes, I would say, yeah, yeah into the Azure ecosystem. Um, yeah, because, I mean, and Avia is, you know, quite widely used, isn't it? With the, I mean, I think, I, I, I think it would be fair to say that most of the studios of your size have or are or have at some stage used it, you know, because of the scale. Well, yeah, yeah, I would, really I would expect so. I mean, I've only got mm. the experience of, of MPC, but yeah, yeah. I understand that they've got lots of other customers. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> they have indeed. Um, excellent. Um, well, let's 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 rest our technology minds for a moment and just talk in a more general fashion for the last few minutes before we before we kind of wind up. Um, it, you know, every everybody that we spoke to on the podcast, you know it's been worth having a discussion about you know the changing landscape that we're all now working in um you know because obviously the world's sort of turned on its head since march this year you know what are your thoughts about um i mean i'm not going to talk to you about remote technology because i think for you that's old news and you've been you know in, in your role at mpc you were you were rolling out you know teradici remote workstations you know internally as remote solutions you know years and years before anyone else was doing it so that's you know you've, you've been there and bought the t-shirt basically but um in terms of the the, the the look for the industry you know in a wider sense i mean what was what what views on that do you have in terms of you know how how the vfx industry will adapt to that will it change the way that you know companies are set up physically you know will it drive technology in a particular direction 
I think I think there's there's been a kind of a, a realization that what we didn't think was possible suddenly has already be, has become possible. I mean, yeah, there was a, a definitely a flip and a kind of um, a surprise to to how quickly the company could adapt when it has to. Mm. Um, I think I think I was on another call, or another podcast, uh, or, or, or some such thing, talking about this um, a few months ago, just after we'd, we'd all done it, um, and. Now that that cat's out of the bag, I don't think you can put it back in. So, so there's yeah. certainly now there's a, there's knowledge that you can do, and it does work really well, and, and you can deliver shows on it, and shows have been delivered on it. Um, that knowledge isn't going to go away, and it's just going to get built on. But what I keep coming back to is is that VFX is definitely a team sport. You can't necessarily you can't deliver an entire show on your own, and it's a very collaborative yeah. team game. And so you you. When you when you're doing the the more creative side of things or the really really gnarly problem solving, you, there's nothing quite like having the same people in the same room, yeah, um, and and sparking ideas off each other. And I don't think we're ever going to get away from that requirement. But I think in terms of what you can do remotely and um, where that fits in, I think I think we've got a, an exciting few years ahead of us, um, kind of under, understanding how we best use that. Um, there are already businesses out there that are virtual that are, that are, that are kind of cloud first and maybe for the, for the purposes of publicity cloud only but yeah. um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't think i don't think you can you can necessarily deliver an entire show without having people in the same room looking at the same image in a in a much more controlled high quality final final in kind of suite so you need you need a a calibrated 2K, 4K, um, uncompressed frame rate review to, to, yeah, to, sell, yeah. to sell the shot. So yeah, I think even some of the companies that you you know that that would that would fit with your description there of cloud first, you know, that I could think of, you know, they that their technology might be in the cloud, but there's still lots of people in one studio. Yeah. Um, so that so, collaborative so, point stands. So yeah. I think I think you're still going to need collaborative spaces. You're still going to have review um, and approval suites that that are collaborative spaces. Um, you still you still have the need for a, a corporate identity and a community and a, and a kind of a team building area. Mm. Um, and I don't think you can really get away with those for very long or, or go very far. I mean, the MPC brand, for example, is incredibly strong, isn't it? I mean, as a reputation, as a, you know, it, it's, you know, it's Wardour Street, it's a London-centric company, albeit it's global, I know, but it, it has a really strong identity in its current residence, in its current place. Um, you know, and it's difficult to imagine it being any other way, even if behind that, you know, frontage, you know, more and more technology is cloud-based or remotely-based. Um, what do you think it will do to the physical footprints of, of some of these companies? I mean, do you think it's going to drive people to shrink in terms of a physical footprint? Is that going to be an, an outcome? I think I think there's a there's a there's a, a minimum size. I don't think you can you can get away without the areas I've just sort of listed. Yeah. So long as you have those capabilities, because of the way that shows and, and businesses swell and, and wane because of because of different show requirements. Um, just like you can you can add more capacity by adding cloud to your your hybrid model, you're going to maybe be able to add more remote users using these remote technologies. Yeah. So um, 
I think there's still going to be a very good reason to have a presence of a significant size um, as your core business. Yeah. But it's going to make the the the, the possibility of, of having a, a work um, team as dynamic as the cloud possible. So so long as your so long as your infrastructure will scale to accommodate that, you can you can grow and, and, and contract as much as, as you need to around that core size. Yeah. And I think I think that's the exciting thing that's coming out of um, the experience of the pandemic is that is that the technologies to do that have now gone through this effective war type of development where all of a sudden everybody's depending on them and they can justify doing huge amounts of investment in technology. And those capabilities all of a sudden massively matured and become essential they become they become as important as the internet in terms of a production tool well that's so, another interesting point as well actually again very shrewd is that you know if you take a, ter- a, a technology i don't know the obvious one would be some, something like teradici you know something that might have taken 18 months to push through development there you know as a new feature or a or a revision or whatever it might be you know i mean i don't know quite what the cycles would be but you know the the level to which people have invested in that technology recently and the influx of um, capital to the business as a result is going to drive all that faster, isn't it? So, you know, those, those technologies will mature at a faster pace. Yeah, it's 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 one of those ten year ten year old overnight successes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, they've they've been they've been working away at, at making a great technology that everybody loves for for years, uh, as you talked talked about earlier. I mean, something like. It must have been more than 10 years, probably 12, 13 years ago, I think MPC first started using Terra Ones. Yeah. And and then and then the software software technology came along and we started playing with cloud-based workstations and, and virtualizing things. And then all of a sudden, overnight, that whole thing just became the go-to solution for, for most people. Mm. Um, and you combine that with a cloud gateway and a broker, and you've then got a very, very functional amazingly useful massively productive tool for people to use and they, they depending on what they've got at home they can they can get almost the same experience as they'd have in the studio yeah yeah absolutely um and all of that will you know all the development in those in those products will will benefit from you know what's been happening recently and there yeah. as you say the increased reliance on them um great well look, i think it, um, sort of happy to wrap things up there if that's if that's all right with you martin thank you very very much that's been really interesting um and i hope people enjoy listening to that i think it's been really really insightful thank you my pleasure thanks for listening this week and we hope you enjoyed the episode if you're interested in any of the technology or issues we discussed please do get in touch using the information provided below this link or by emailing us on info at escape-technology.com